My guest for the day is a national board certified teacher, father, and storyteller that has overcome so much in his life, from living in poverty as a child to being kicked out of the university and having to fight his way up to find success. I'm Ben Brown, and this is the Madisonian Podcast. I'm so beyond excited to announce the launch of our website, themadisonianpodcast.com. I have been working on this website and would like to thank a listener and a friend, David, for giving me this opportunity to have a website to direct my listeners and my non-listeners to. If you would like to share the podcast with your friends, you can share with them the website or you can share with them our link tree. It is only optimized for computers or tablets right now, but we are working on mobile optimization as well. I was interested in today's guest because he is my high school history teacher. When he gave us a brief introduction about himself on one of the first days of school, I knew there was so much more to unfold in his life that would be extremely interesting to my audience. Oh boy, was I right. Now please enjoy my interview with Mr. Lyman Elliott III. My full name is Lyman Edward Elliott III. So I grew up in southeast Wisconsin, um, south side of Milwaukee, not Milwaukee proper, but like in the sort of blue collar Milwaukee suburbs. So uh, South Milwaukee, Cudahy, um, Oak Creek, um, back when Oak Creek was kind of still um, sort of agricultural, right? Uh, now Oak Creek is this big middle class community. Uh, it's flattened out. There's not as much manufacturing there anymore. But uh, when I was seven, my parents were divorced, and so I spent most of my childhood in a single-parent split family, Um, you know, and those those first couple of years, my dad uh, lost his job. He had a manufacturing job. He lost his job in 1986. Um, They broke the union, and, uh, and he had trouble after that finding gainful employment, so he wasn't doing real well. Um, My mom um worked really hard in low paying jobs and so we um we had a lot of poverty and those first couple of years in the divorce uh were really rough um we spent some time in a shelter uh we got uh, we had a couple of, my family celebrates christmas so there were a couple of welfare christmases in there there was one in particular where um i know that we wouldn't have had any toys or anything under the tree at all except for basically what were unlabeled toys for boys from a local uh, faith-based organization uh, that was making sure that we had Christmas. So, so so what was, tell us, like, what is a welfare Christmas and, and what was that like to have that tough childhood and, and grow up in poverty? and and. Yeah, we just stayed in a shelter for a time. So I had to leave, leave the school I was in. Um, and go to a different school for I, I, the better part of uh, the, the year between second and third grade. And, uh, and there was a summer sandwiched in there. So it was yeah, I, six, eight months we spent in a shelter. Um, so we weren't necessarily in and out of shelters, but um, welfare Christmas, you know, it was, uh, it was, we got a lot of groceries from, uh, from food pantries. We accepted uh, government assistance during that time. We couldn't have made it, I don't think, without social supports. I'm the oldest of three boys, and, you know, today I'm a father of three boys, and I wonder, you know, looking back, how my mom made it work, you know, uh, because I'm in a stable relationship. I have a middle-class, basically, college-educated career, and uh, and it's really been uh, interesting to see child-rearing and child-raising through through the lens of a parent and wondering how my mom did it. Um, you know, she, she sang at our, uh, at our church for wedding and funerals, made a little bit of extra money there. She was a bus driver for a little while. Um, it just, uh, it was tough business. It was tough times. So what was school like for you? Um, school was, so I was almost held back 
in third grade. And it was almost definitely related to the fact uh, that we were transitioning between homes, right? Um, uh, in second grade, <clears throat> I was uh, I was an advanced uh, reader. I was reading uh, two grade levels. I was reading at fourth grade level. Uh, then after um, we we went to so I, I changed into a Milwaukee public school, and there they were talking about advancing me to fifth grade. Uh, by the time we returned to the school, basically where our home was. Uh, they were talking about keeping me back in third grade, so I had lost all kinds of educational progress uh, during that time period. Um, it was a rough period because, um, you know, we wore a lot of secondhand clothes and clothes that we got from faith-based organizations. Uh, it was tough. Uh, you know, poverty, poverty is tough enough, but when you wear it, uh, I think everybody gets to understand that that's the poor kid sitting over there. And so um, we suffered in a lot of different ways uh, in those first couple of years. So what effect did that have on, on, on your childhood? Just that you said, like, people seeing you and, and knowing that you were in that situation, what effect did that have on you and, and your education and, and just everything? Yeah, well, it's a solid question. I, you know, obviously you get teased a little bit and stuff like that. I don't remember thinking about any of that, though, as though it was necessarily bullying per se. Um, but being raised in a single parent family, I mean, my dad struggled on his own. He didn't, he was a see on the weekend dad. Um, so um, my mom had had to eventually, we moved out of the house where we had lived as, as kids and took a uh, we lived in an apartment uh, that was uh, Section 8 housing, rent-subsidized housing uh, from the government. And my mom took a, a full-time job during the day. And so um, we were, back in the day, we used to refer to it as being called uh, latchkey kids. So, you know, my brothers and I would walk to school, um, you know, go to school all day long, walk home. And then I was sort of responsible from about... Uh, let's say the age of 11, 10 or 11, um, forward for kind of running the household until my mom would come home later in the evenings from her job. Uh, so, you know, I think at an early age, I sort of learned how to cook, how to clean, um, how to, uh, how to be self-disciplined and sort of take care of stuff. Um, I, I, you know, I stayed out of trouble for the most part. I think having the responsibilities around the house and the obligation that I felt to my brothers uh, sort of helped keep me out of trouble. So were you doing any like extracurricular activities at this time or, or what was your focus in life? Was there something that you were drawn to or something that you knew you could maybe continue with? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Um I, I didn't really participate in sports um, because that required, you know, being delivered uh, places and, and uh, all of that sort of thing. I did uh, find an outlet in music. Um, and by, by middle school, um, I was participating in, in the various concerts around the, the year. Uh, I had a, a supporting role in uh, our middle school holiday um, uh, I guess you'd call it a play, uh, winter play. We did, uh, I was Bob Cratchit in the Christmas Carol. Um, you know, so, so those things interested me. I, I always felt a strong connection to music, uh, because my mother was a singer, like I said earlier at church, she was uh, a song minister. Um, and so I always felt uh, a connection to music through my religion as well. Um, as far as connecting to social groups, uh, I got wrapped up with the Boy Scouts um, when uh, when I was in grade school and middle school. And despite the fact that we struggled uh, to get along uh, financially, my mom managed to scrape together the money on a, on occasion for me to join along uh, on Boy Scout campouts. They were pretty cheap, uh, so we'd go out on a weekend, and and I had exposure to um other people and other sorts of families and other other traditions through the boy scouts and so i learned how to cook uh on an open fire i, I got a lot of skills uh related to outdoor life and that's something i continued to pursue as an adult 
So what was what was high school like for you? What was that experience for so, you? So um yeah yeah um I my freshman I I my freshman year in high school I went to uh, Cudahy, uh which is again on the south side of Milwaukee. Then my my mother met uh, met a man and, and remarried, and we moved to Racine. And so uh, my high school years were split up between my freshman year and my sophomore through my senior year. Uh, so it's real tough uh, starting at a new high school, and, and one as large as Racine Case High School in Racine, uh, a large it's it's a large school rather like West uh, or Memorial, right? Uh, so uh, making that transition into a new community where you don't know anyone, um, it gave me the opportunity to have a fresh start. I was starting to get into a little bit of trouble in places uh, with with friends and things like that uh, in Cudahy. So it gave me the opportunity to start over uh, on one level, um, but it also gave me the opportunity to reinvent myself a little bit. Um, so I, I did start participating in uh, athletics. I ran cross country and, um, and swimming. Uh, I was a sprinter in swimming um, and I ran hurdles in track. So I wasn't really particularly talented at, at any of those things, um, but it, they were things I made to connect with other people and uh, and do while I was in school. Um, Racine Case uh, was an international baccalaureate high school, so I was able to participate in really highly uh, rigorous academic curriculum. Uh, I took uh, two years of inter -baccalaureate, or international baccalaureate uh, biology, uh, chemistry, um, took upper level math, and so I, I wouldn't say I was a uh, an academically focused person, but uh, um, I participated on our, our school's first academic decathlon team, um, you know, and so that's kind of how I identified. Uh, I, I, I didn't have a lot of friends. I wasn't very popular. Uh, I never went to prom. Uh, I never went to the winter formal or any of that sort of thing, so. So what did you see in your future? Like, what did you think you were going to do after high school and, and what was next? So uh, my, my original, again, my identity with, uh, with the outdoors is something that was pretty consistent for me um, through my, high school, my middle school and high school career. And uh, I thought I was kind of oriented towards college. Uh, and I thought the reason I wanted to go to college was to become a wildlife ecologist, maybe work for the uh, the Department of the Interior, or uh, perhaps um, uh, the D Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. Um, as I graduated and, and toddled off to college, uh, I found that I had a great deal of difficulty. Again, kind of, you asked me earlier about poverty, but as I went off to college, um, I, I took loans, uh, but they only offer you so many loans in college. Uh, that are deferred. My family didn't really contribute to my college career. Um, and I struggled to remain enrolled in college. So I worked multiple part-time jobs while I went to school uh, at UW-Madison, as a matter of fact. And um, I was, uh, I, I, so I had to pay, uh, you know, work uh, between loans and my part-time job. Uh, I was kind of on my own for living expenses and uh and for tuition and books and it was a really tough predicament to be in the only support i got from my family i have an aunt uh who has always kind of looked out for me um she sent up a box of like uh homemade canned goods at one point in time and that was about the extent of my support from home uh, i was able to go home on the weekends occasionally and do my laundry and stuff um, but it was really tough my time in madison was really tough the university there is uh it seems like the whole system, the whole economy around the university is sort of set up for, for students who have more support than what I had at the time. Uh, I worked as a, an auto mechanic, a technician at uh, the car care clinic, which is uh, still located on University Avenue over there uh, at the end of Campus Drive. Uh, I was a bouncer at a, a bar called uh, Mad Hatters, uh, which I think is still located on Johnson Street there near the campus. Um, and I shook wings at BW3 on State Street uh, on the weekend. So between those three things, um, and I, I donated plasma at the Plasma Center uh, down next to the college club. 
uh, wherever that is at the end of State Street. Um, and, and that's how I managed to pay the groceries and keep the lights on at the apartment. And it was really difficult. Um, and uh, I was kicked out of the university on several occasions, twice that I can remember, um, by the bursar's office. Now, the bursar is the one that collects your tuition money, basically. Um, and I basically, I, I essentially got a, a letter from the bursar's office that said, you know, if you don't pay the rest of your tuition by such and such a date, um, you know, you'll be dropped from your classes. So I would pick up a few extra shifts, get the money put together, go back, and uh, and and usually I'd end up getting. I got kicked out by the bursar, but I continued to attend classes. Uh, so by the time I would have the money put together, uh, pay the bursar. Uh, that I would have to walk physically, uh, walk my um, my application through the Peterson building at the time, and uh, and go back and get special permissions from my various professors to actually re-enroll in classes that I was already taking. And every every professor wanted to know like what's going on, so I had to explain to them uh, that I was struggling with finances, that I was poor, that I was you know not supported by my family. And it was very embarrassing uh, and humiliating. It was a humiliating time in my life. Um, and so in 1996, uh, it was 1995, it was the, the winter of 96, um, I went back home uh, and lived with my mom and uh, uh, without a college degree in hand and uh, a couple of credits, but it just was too hard. I, had, I Like I completely was crushed. Um, and I didn't know what to do with myself after that. Uh, so I uh, took a job building houses and I learned residential rough carpentry uh, by working on a crew on the north side of Milwaukee. We probably built about 100, 100 houses or so in the area of 107th and Granville Road, just south of Brown Deer in Milwaukee. Wow. So how are you going to get by and how are you going to... How are you going to move forward from that time? And, and what did you have in your mind that you were going to ultimately do in, in for a living? And, and, and how are you going to come back from from that that point? Yeah, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm kind of a storyteller. So I, you know, I apologize for all of that. But no, no, um, it's what we love. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Um yeah, it was tough. I, you know, I, when I left Madison, I struggled in every aspect, right? Uh, I struggled mostly financially, but I'm not sure that I was being completely honest with myself about that. I felt like I was struggling basically to make it at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, right? It, which uh, crushed me. I just went, I'm not cut out for college. Uh, it affected me in a really negative, dark way where I said, okay, I, I guess I have to resolve to, you know, acquiring some skills, Learning how to build houses was one of those things. And I've, I've advocated uh, to my students, you know, I used to work at, uh, well, I've, I've advocated, I'm a teacher now for 16 years, and I've always advocated for, to my students that the building trades are really a fantastic unemployment insurance policy. Uh, never in my life was I more than a week or two away from uh, getting a paycheck, right? Once I, once I had skills in the trades. Um, but, uh, you don't run into a lot of 50 year old residential rough carpenters. I mean, they're out there, but the trades are tough on your body. It's how men sell their bodies for money. Um, and residential rough carpentry, uh, it became pretty clear to me after about a year, um, that, uh, that I wasn't going to grow old in the building trades without, uh, without really having it beat my body up. So I took a job as an industrial maintenance mechanic, um, you know, a couple different other things, office furniture installation. Uh, I was in a delivery truck when my my delivery partner, you know, we used to use uh, move heavy office furniture. He said, you know, we were having an argument about the uh, the Bayview massacre at Rolling Mills in 1886. And uh, it was a labor uprising where uh, organizers were trying to protest for an eight hour work day. They were trying to just get balance uh, in their lives. And uh, Milwaukee police shot into a crowd uh, of, uh, of protesters associated with that, that, uh, that protest. And I forget if it was nine people. I think seven people were directly related with the protest. 
and uh, two other people were just hit by stray bullets. Um, but he and I were, were having an argument about half-hour lunches, and I said, you know, people fought and died so you could have a half-hour lunch in an eight-hour workday. And, uh, and he thought I was being melodramatic, and I said, you know, just two miles from here over in Bayview is where this thing happened. And, uh, and my partner said to me, man, why do you, what are you doing here in this truck with me? And I said, well, geez, man, uh, just making a living, paying the bills, just like you, just like you. He's like, you really pissed me off. I don't know if I can say that, but that's really what he said. Um, he said, you really pissed me off. I said, why? Cause I'm right. Cause I have the answer. You know, I, I was insufferable in those days. And, uh, uh, he says, no man, because you're wasting your life in this truck with me and you know at that point in time uh that was maybe 1998 so it'd been about two years in the workforce um and you know my friend tom pollock he's a little bit older than me but i've told him now a uh, half a dozen times like dude that was the push that was the push right there that day in the truck we were stuck in traffic by uh by what's now miller park uh, I remember it clear as day. It was it wasn't even eight o'clock in the morning yet. We were already going at it like that. But um, but that was the push. And I went, okay, um, I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to get my degree, and I'm going to work a full time job, third shift in a factory, um, and I'm going to pay as I go. And if it gets too hard, I'm going to step back. I'll take a lighter. Uh, you know, instead of going full-time, I'll go part-time. Uh, you know, I'll go during the summers. Um, I'll take a semester off if I need to, to save the money up. You know, I'm just going to, I'm going to plow along and, uh, you know, I'm going to be 30 someday. And the only question is whether or not I'll have a college degree. So I'm not going full-time. I'm just going to make it work. Um, so when I, when I got kicked out of Madison, um, I, my family was really critical of me. And I remember my father saying, like, um, oh, you got kicked out of Madison. You could, yeah, he, was, he was terrible to me. Um, you know, you were partying too much and da-da-da-da-da. And I went, Dad, I don't even drink. You know, uh, you, do you have any idea? My dad's not a college graduate, so he wouldn't know. Right? I said, you have no idea how hard it was, how difficult, how impossible it was to make it work up there. I did the best I could, you know. Uh, so I was really afraid in going back to college, right, when I made this decision to leave my job as a furniture guy, I was really afraid to go back to college uh, because I didn't, I thought if it didn't work, if I failed again, if I wasn't able to pay for it, uh, I don't want my family, uh, you know, people like my dad, uh, you know, I had cousins who were giving me a hard time. Um, I don't want my family to know about this. So for the first two semesters, that I went back to college, and at that time, I, I went back and lived with my mom. Uh, my first two semesters that I went back to college, I went in secret. Nobody except my brother knew that I was back in school. Uh, so I entered UW-Milwaukee as a university special student, as a returning adult student. A lot of the work I did at Madison transferred, so I you know, entered Milwaukee as like a uh, second semester sophomore or something. It wasn't, it wasn't a full, I wasn't a full fledged, you know, junior, uh, but like a second semester sophomore. Um, and, uh, and I just decided I was going to plug along and make it work. And so I took a job, uh, manufacturing, uh, in manufacturing, I was a maintenance mechanic, industrial maintenance mechanic. I worked on robotic machinery that assembled washer lid switches you know the kind of thing you lift the when your washing machine is imbalanced you kind of lift the lid and you look down in there to see what's going on you shove your finger in the little button those buttons that you're not supposed to do that to uh we made ten thousand of those in an eight hour shift and it always blew my mind that you know while i was plugging away in the factory for eight hours that somewhere in america ten thousand washing machines were being sold it always blew my mind um and to get out of that factory. So uh, in 2002, uh, to, to kind of close out that chapter of the story, in 2002, uh, after 10 years, uh, 10 years in the workforce and kind of abortive attempts uh, to, to make college work, I graduated from the University of Milwaukee uh, with a bachelor's degree in history. Um, 100% self-financed and debt-free. Um, when I finally told my mom that I was going back to school, 
she, you know, she thought I was just in a relationship uh, where I just wasn't coming home or something. Uh, so it really was a secret to everyone in my family uh, when I finally came out and said, like, all right, I'm I'm going back to school. I've been doing it for two two semesters now. I'm getting all A's. Right. My second college career um, was very different. And what it took was a a a sixteen dollar an hour uh, full time factory job uh, to be able to make it work. So I went. I I have no idea how I survived uh, those those three years in the factory that it took me to get through my college degree. I graduated with all my fingers attached. I never lost anything in any machines. Um, but uh, but I made it work and. Um, I literally felt my life changing. Um, I, I continued to work in the factory uh, through my student teaching uh, because I went for a post-baccalaureate certification to teach. Um, and uh, and I, I remember thinking in the factory that, uh, that I felt my life changing because I would literally you know, be, be rebuilding an industrial gearbox and I'd be wearing the oil and the grease from my fingertips all the way up to my armpits. And I would literally walk into the bathroom at work, scrub up and change out of my working class clothing. And I'd put on dockers and a button down shirt and different shoes. And I would walk out of the factory at 630 in the morning. And I'd be at Milwaukee High School of the Arts on 23rd and Highland by 730 in the morning so that I could walk in and do my student teaching. And kids were calling me Mr. Elliot. You know, like in the factory, I was just Lyman. Um, but it was it was this amazing transformation uh, transition from an, a a dysfunctional uh, attempt, right? Like it was like I was officially leaving poverty behind me. I don't know how else to how else to express that except to say that I, I moved out of a a blue collar a like a, a it wasn't even like a real blue collar existence. It felt like uh, a marginal blue collar existence, but it felt literally like a step up uh, in society. Like I, I managed to grab the next rung on the ladder and pull up one. Uh, and so um, it was amazing. I took uh, took my first teaching job. Uh, it was real hard in those days to get a job teaching social studies. Uh, social studies teachers were a dime a dozen back in those days. And I had a, a friend in administration explain to me later that in the district where she was working, they had two social studies teachers positions open and they had uh, almost 300 candidates apply for two positions. So if you got called for an interview back in those days, um, it was really a compliment. My first uh, my first teaching gig was uh, I, I did a long term substitution for a gentleman who was called up to active duty in uh, in the um, in the reserves. And uh, so he needed that was in Prairie du Chien. Uh, way on the west end of the state. And uh, so I, I figured if I was able to get a little bit of experience that that might be a difference maker in my job search. So that was my first teaching job. And uh, and I did that for five months while he was gone. And uh, and then uh, took took my letters of recommendation from that job and, uh, and bounced over to Sun Prairie where I took a one-year uh, contract uh, and uh, worked at Sun Prairie High School for a year, uh, and then kind of bounced around a little bit looking for a job. And uh, they, they finally, uh, I finally found one down in Beloit, where I taught for 12 years. Uh, I taught at Beloit Memorial High School, a very different place than Madison. Um, so that, that Beloit was great. So how did you get the National Board Teacher uh, oh. certification thing? Tell us about that, because I know yeah. that's... That's a big deal. Uh, it is. I, you know, I, um, it, oddly enough, with time, it seems like less of a big deal. But I'll tell you what, it was huge. Um, down in Beloit, uh, a friend of mine who still teaches there, uh, I, I taught social studies in Beloit for 10 years and uh, got my master's degree, ultimately, in 2007, I should say, while I was working at Beloit. I went to school uh, at UW-Madison in their graduate program uh, in curriculum and instruction. So a little bit like uh, Julius Caesar returning to Rome, 
uh, I returned uh, to Concord University of Wisconsin Madison, and that's where my master's degree is from. Um, back in those days, uh, as a teacher would get additional master's degrees or additional graduate credits, you could move up on a salary schedule. Um, after my master's degree, there weren't many other pathways unless you were going to go for a PhD or something. And I just never felt like Dr. Lyman Edward Elliott III was something I wanted to do. Uh, so a friend of mine who worked in Beloit, still works in Beloit, said, hey, Lyman, uh, what do you know about National Board Teacher Certification? And I had known one teacher in Sun Prairie uh, who was National Board Certified, and she was fantastic. Um, but other than that, I didn't know much about it. So he and I began to look into it together, and we came to realize that you could get uh, some additional pay uh, there's a stipend for National Board Certified Teachers from the Department of Public Instruction in the state of Wisconsin. And so we began to consider that and look at it pretty closely. Um, that was our original reason to stop, kind of step into the process. The thing about National Board Teacher Certification is, uh, you know, right now um, in, this, in the entire United States, about 3% of teachers are National Board Certified. Uh, in Wisconsin, we have about 2% of our teachers are National Board Certified. And what it is, uh, as we learned uh, while we were reading, uh, it's a portfolio-based teacher evaluation process. So you literally um, take, take videos of yourself teaching in the classroom. You write detailed analysis of your instructional decision-making, including the development of materials, how you interact with students, uh, how uh, you evaluate whether or not students are learning, how you interact with colleagues, how you interact with the community. Uh, there's a big test uh, associated with uh, content, so your historic uh, understanding, your understanding of social studies, economics, uh, political science, those sorts of things, um, and it's a very highly rigorous uh, process. Um, the first, uh, the, you know, the first, and, and it's... Um, it, the first, probably about 64% at the time when we went through the process, about 64% of teachers who attempted it actually succeeded. Um, and so the national board process was, was a way to separate ourselves and distinguish ourselves at a time when we felt like teachers, you know, I don't want to get too political, but at a time when we felt like teachers weren't being properly respected in sort of the broader political community, it was a way that my friend and I could distinguish ourselves as exceptional teachers. At the time, uh, Beloit had about uh, 750 educators in the entire district, and there was only one National Board certified teacher that we were aware of in the entire district. So my friend and I sort of organized an effort to help other teachers in Beloit become National Board certified. And we created all sorts of support structures and uh, professional development opportunities. We advocated to our school board and to our superintendent who were all very receptive to the idea. Um, and and uh, I, I don't wanna say we negotiated, but we advocated for uh, some salary consideration for teachers in Beloit who were successful here. So we added some incentives. Um, and, and now there are uh, probably a dozen National Board certified teachers in Beloit. Um, today, I'm a candidate support provider. Uh, I'm the president of the Wisconsin National Board Network. Uh, which um, which does a lot of outreach and uh, publicity around National Board teacher certification. We help other teachers uh, access the process and get mentorship and coaching uh, to help them uh, be successful in it. It was one of the greatest, National Board teacher certification was one of the single greatest professional development programs I've ever been a part of in, in my entire teaching career. It truly changed everything about how I view teaching and learning and sort of uh, helped me develop an idea around a what I'll refer to as a clinical model of teacher practice that really, uh, as, as we've now acquired uh, the educator effectiveness uh, evaluation system, it's very much um, 
uh, more rigorous than the educator uh, effectiveness system, but they resemble each other in their sort of clinical approach to education. So, um, you know, it changed my life. It changed my identity as a teacher and, uh, and it changed everything as far as I'm concerned with regard to um, uh, how I relate to and with my students and how I relate to and with the teaching profession altogether. I mean, a teacher's job is to like remain impartial on issues like politics and stuff. How do you keep that that kind of that wall up between your opinions and your students? Because I I, I can understand that that could be a really tough thing to do. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question, and I think um, it's an especially good question for social studies teachers, right? Um, and uh, and I don't you know. Um, I know we've talked about this in class a little bit, um, but there are, are really two schools of thought on this, and it splits one way uh, where teachers say, okay, I'm gonna disclose to you what all of my views are, what my political uh, ideals are, and, uh, and in the interest of perfect transparency, right? Uh, and then let you, the student, make a choice about whether or not you agree with me. Um, that's one pathway. The other pathway is to work diligently as a professional and as a, a practitioner to maintain uh, the appearance of, uh, of, of being non-biased, right? And I think the latter example is far more difficult. Um, I've always, as a practitioner, been worried that my own political viewpoints would be influential to students. And that would be a principal concern of mine, right? Because I want my students to be able to do their own thinking, their own evaluations. Uh, of course, there are other people in their lives, parents, families, other stakeholders, whose opinions they also value. Um, and they should be looking to those people for the kind of guidance that's uh, congruent with their own upbringing and their own culture. Um, so my my approach, and again, I you know I mentioned that I've taught civics, uh, I've taught AP uh, government while I was down in Beloit. Um, I teach social studies still at Madison West High School, and one of the challenges that I think is is particularly uh, burdensome to teachers uh, of social studies is that that appearance of uh, impartiality. Right now, there are some issues that are settled. Right. Um, it, it might be considered political to say that there is racism in the world. Right. It might be considered political to say that racism is wrong. As far as I'm concerned, those are settled issues. Right. Uh, so while they might be considered political, um, those are settled issues. Those are issues that you're not going to uh, really convince me we're going to argue about because people of color say um, uh, racism exists. I, uh, as a, as an European American or an American, a white American of European descent, uh, it's not my place to say racism doesn't exist, right? It's a settled issue. Um, my thing, uh, is to say, okay, what settled issues do we have? Uh, and then where you'll find my impartiality is in considering what we should do about those things. Right. So I will say to students, this is a settled issue. Right. Racism exists. Here are all the reasons why. Um, and then my impartiality enters in where we say, OK, what should we do about that? How do we address this in our society? That's where I want students doing their own thinking, um, because your generation uh, is is uh, brilliant and politically motivated and uh, very aware of our social and uh, economic and political issues these days. And I want you guys doing your best thinking. So how has your life and, and, and work been affected by, by COVID? I mean, I know, but just just give me a sense of uh, how it's been for you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been tough um, because Madison made, it, made the decision to do virtual learning. Um, you know, I'm, I'm working from the basement and I, I talk about this with my students all the time. I'm, I'm in the basement, you know. Uh, my wife uh, it has her own business, and so she's able to work from home. Uh, the school where my sons go is not Madison schools, but um, where my sons go to school, they gave the choice about whether to go virtual 
or face to face. And so because my wife and I are both at home, it, it seemed a natural but difficult choice uh, to have my my sons uh, go to virtual school. And they've been, um, you know, they've made adjustments to it. Here we are in like the ninth week of classes this week. And my sons have made adjustments to it. But like everyone else, they're suffering with the social piece, right? They miss their friends. They miss uh, the energy of the school and the classroom. Uh, they miss those extracurricular things, you know, the football games that you go to and all that sort of stuff. Um, for my part, um, I, I find that I'm not doing a very good job of getting up out of this chair and moving around, right? I'm not doing a good job of living a balanced life. Um, teaching online has been very uh, challenging in that as a face-to-face -face instructor and a National Board Certified Teacher, um, I, I pride myself on being a uh, creative uh, pedagogue, right? A, a creative teacher. And so, you know, I have dozens of, uh, you know, as a social studies teacher, I pride myself on, on having uh, sort of a lab-based, simulation-based, learning-by-doing approach. And that's most definitely been influenced by my experience in the trades, right? Because much of my experience in the trades has been learning-by-doing. Um, but the, you can take a, an approach like that in social studies too, if uh, if you do uh, labs and if you do simulations and debates, and in you know, so I have all these rich lessons that have been tested by almost uh, um, you know 16 years in uh, in the classroom, and uh, and all of those lessons, in a virtual environment, all of those lessons are sitting in mothballs. Uh, so, you know, above and beyond having to convert materials to a digital friendly format and trying to learn new technologies and sort of all of those things, one of the things that I've personally found most disappointing about teaching in the, the post-COVID reality is the fact that the very best that I have to offer as an educator, the stuff that I, I put my boots on and come to work in the morning to do, uh, all that very best stuff is sitting in mothballs. All of it's sitting on a shelf waiting for the moment when we all get to go back into the classroom and uh, and learn from each other in a social environment where we can get away with learning by doing and uh, just, just doing things interacting uh, in ways that, that you can't uh, do in a face-to-face -face instructional environment. So, so, you know, the learning experience isn't as rich, as far as I'm concerned, as it would be in face-to-face. -face, and that's just the sad reality of it. Um, but, but also one of the other things that, that sort of is affecting me, um, you know, most of our instruction is done through the Zoom platform um, or, you know, uh, internet-based, you know, video, video calls. Um, and... And I, I'm lacking that that energy. There's so much energy that goes on in the classroom, right? Interaction between teacher and student, interaction between student and student, interaction between teacher and teacher, interaction between teachers and administrators. I miss being out in the hallways, right? Uh, and saying, all right, everybody, let's get to class. I miss all the basics, you know? Um, but I, I, you know, I also think there's, there's a whole lot of, um, you know, they, they say that, what is it, 90% of what we say or 90% of how we communicate is nonverbal, right? I, I don't know if that's true or not. I'm not an expert on communication. But uh, if that's true, we're missing a whole lot of communication uh, between people and from people. I, I love being in the classroom and being a goofball with students. I love using uh sarcasm and humor i use a lot of physical humor a lot of facial expression a lot of body humor i'm very active and dynamic in the classroom and i don't get to do those things anymore and so i found that a little bit uh disappointing in the po post covid teaching reality yeah so coming from you know like a, a tough beginning of your life being kicked out of university multiple times and and to where you are now i mean been teaching for 12 or years or however many years more 16. than 12 16 yeah. um where do you attribute your success to and where you where do you give that is that luck is it faith is it skill is it 
where does it come from? Where do you attribute to? Yeah, that's uh, that's really the big money question, isn't it, Ben? Um, I'll tell you what, down in Beloit, uh, 77% of the students in Beloit uh, qualified for free and reduced lunch. I always say to people, Beloit was, uh, is, Beloit is a, a little city with big city problems, right? Right down there, right on the, the border with Illinois, right in the smack dab middle of our state. You drive 60 miles south of Madison and there it is. Um, poverty there was something that didn't care really what color you were, right? Uh, it, it's something, Beloit is uh, what you might refer to as a classic Rust Belt city, right? Uh, their manufacturing took a dive. It, it, in many respects, Beloit was very symbolic of my own life. Um, and, and we have those realities in Madison. We have those realities at West High School, but they're just not at the same level as they were in Beloit. And um, what I can say with confidence, there's a number of things that, that I could attribute my success, if you want to call what I'm living now success, but um, I'm not in poverty anymore. And so when I say success, I mean measured success. Um, one of the things I, I often say to people is, you know, public education is really important. You know, it's it's easy to come out against social supports like um, like like uh, like badger care, for instance, medical care for people who who live in poverty. It's easy to come out against welfare. It's easy to come out against rental assistance. Right. But those are all things that my family needed when I was a kid. Right. And, and having to stay in a shelter. I mean, like we we had nothing, man. Um, and it is through the generosity of others. It is through state sponsored assistance that my family was able to survive those years. Um, but aside from that, I've always said that the very best opportunity I had to do anything with my life was presented to me in in the public schools and um i believe that with every fiber of my body it's the thing that caused me to leave a delivery truck right and walk into a factory with the determination that i was going to get my college degree and become a teacher right that i was going to help other students who were impoverished right other students who had some level of academic and intellectual potential to become, right, who they wanted to be, right, to, to surmount all of the insurmountable things. So public education goes in that list. A little bit of public support goes on that list. Um, my father was an important person in my life, good and bad. Uh, he just passed away back in August. Um, he and I don't talk much or didn't talk much. We were kind of estranged. Uh, but my father gave me a love for history. He gave me a love for travel. When we would get together on the weekends, um, you know, his big thing, we would either go to movies, right, if it was wintertime. But in the, if it was summertime, we went camping. We went fishing. Uh, we went to, you know, old world Wisconsin. We went to the Milwaukee Public Museum. My dad believed in learning by visiting, right, L learning by seeing, learning by doing. And all of that was uh, very rich. And my dad gave me that love for history. Um, I have a, a neighbor, my mom has a neighbor, uh, John Pollock, who I, who I attribute a great deal. Uh, these guys were different. Tom Pollock from the truck and John Pollock from, uh, from my mom's neighborhood. Different people, both, both last name Pollock. Um, John Pollock was a... Um, <laughs> He was a factory worker, a little bit like me, uh, who as a younger man uh, robbed a convenience store and did uh, armed robbery and went to Green Bay uh, prison for three years uh, as a felon. And uh, when he got out of prison, uh, he took a job at J.I. Case Tractor Factory in Racine, and uh, that's where he worked for his whole life. Um, but he, uh, he found religion and uh, transformed his life. He was one of the best educated people I've ever met. Um, and he got his education, he said, while he was in Green Bay, sitting, feeling absolute shame about what the, the shame he brought to his family and to his parents who raised him to be a better person than that. 
Um, he said he sat in Green Bay uh, and did his time and did nothing but read books and uh, and truly probably should have been a college educated person. He's a brilliant man, um, but uh, spent his life in the factory. And John Pollock was uh, was an inspiration to me. He showed what was possible. He gave me respect for intellectual pursuit. He gave me respect for uh, the transformative power of education and the importance of having skills, right? Uh, so to be to be somebody who knew how to do, you know, like I know welding, I know machining, I know something about how to fix cars. I know something about uh, electricity. All those things matter in, in the grand scheme of things for my life. And, uh, and so when I think about difference makers, I think about people uh, who were inspirational. John Pollock, uh, interestingly enough, if you ask me who my favorite teacher was, I would tell you my favorite teacher wasn't really a teacher at all. My favorite teacher, my most influential teacher was John Pollock, reformed felon. Is there anything else you want to say to the listeners? I want to thank people for taking the time to support you as you are uh, engaging in this higher level of, uh, of American citizenship, uh, you know, interviewing people, sharing stories, uh, engaging in journalism. I mean, like, dude, this is this is serious stuff here. And I have a whole lot of respect for for what you're doing here. And I want to thank you for for complimenting me uh, with with the request to share my story. Um I, I want to say to anybody who's listening, right, public education is one of those things. Education is hard, right? Uh, poverty is hard. And getting the heck out of poverty and using education to do it, using skills to do it, is hard. But anything in life worth doing is hard. And so uh, I want people to reach out to me if they need help. Uh, if they need inspiration, that's the work of my life right there, is to help people transform, to wake up in a world that's different than the one they were born into. And so I thank you for sharing my story, Ben, um, in, 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 to the degree and extent that it will help people do exactly that. If you want to reach out to Mr. Elliot, then you can email me at benjaminbrownieproductions at gmail.com. The Madisonian Podcast is a production of Benjamin Brownie in association with We Are Productions. It's hosted by Ben Brown, cover art editing, producing, and booking by Ben Brown. If you are a Madisonian and would like to be on the show, please email us at benjaminbrownieproductions at gmail.com. Or if you know someone who you think would be good for the show. Please support us by buying our merch at teespring.com slash stores slash the Madisonian podcast or click the link in the description of this episode. Please, please, please check out our brand new website, themadisonianpodcast.com. 